So we've been practicing here together for a little over a day now. And I'd like to offer some reflections at this time with regard to what we're engaged in here. To come on a retreat, to enter into a period of spiritual practice and uh, discipline as we are engaging in the, the yoga in the meditation, and the, the different forms of the day. We can perhaps find ourselves at times, at times reflecting on, wondering, you know, what, what are we doing here? What's this about? What is this in the service of? And I think it's a, a fair enough question to be asking. It may be a question we ask if we're doing this the first time in it, may equally be a question we're asking if we've done this many, many times before and yet somehow, almost despite ourselves, find ourselves back in this situation. What are we doing? And I guess it's a good question to be asking also about our lives. Not just about these four or five days here on retreat at Guy House, but what, what's, what's this all about? At one level, we can start with the question or the inquiry of, well, well, what's actually happening? What's going on here? And there are many ways we could answer that. The fundamental thing that's happening, of course, is that we're here. We kind of take that one for granted. It's a little bit like, oh, yeah, well, we know that. But what does that mean, that we're here to be alive? in this situation, to find ourselves as we are somewhere between birth a little while ago, probably for most of us quite some time ago, and death, uh, hopefully some time away, but no certainty as to the fact that that is so. Here we are between birth and death, born without asking, choosing or organising that for ourselves as far as we can tell. Certainly I don't remember sorting out how that was going to happen and when and where. It just happened. And likewise, death will probably come for most of us without our choice or being able to determine how and when and where and in what situation. At least we chose to come on retreat, so we feel, you know, we have some degree of modest control and influence in what's happening here. And it's true, we did. We brought ourselves here, all of us, one way or another. And what's it like to be here in the situation where we can make some choices? We do, and rightly, appropriately so. But some of the most fundamental things we don't choose, we can't choose. And these larger realities we can talk about, we can point to as the... Uh, in a way, the bookmarks of our existence, birth and death, and the life, the existence that happens between these bookmarks. This is something we're interested in, I think. Or if we're not, we could usefully be interested in understanding, coming to know it more deeply, because we just turn up here, it seems, and no one gave, at least no one gave me, an instruction manual. I don't know if anyone gave you an instruction manual, 
Most of our parents probably attempt to give us something of an incomplete instruction manual, but mostly since they hadn't really learned how to work this thing anyway, it's a pretty limited bunch of instructions we got. So how do we live? What makes sense? What's truly useful, skillful, helpful? This is really what we're here. That's what I'm here to explore. That's what I'm interested in, the exploration of. And uh, when I come and sit at the, it seems, front of the hall, or certainly in front of all of you good folk, in an evening such as this, to talk, I, I really enjoy taking a moment just to kneel down and express my gratitude and appreciation to the Buddha. It's a traditional form that this image behind us represents something of a human being who dedicated themselves to, to awakening, to understanding what was true, what was skillful, what was beneficial and wholesome in life. And in dedicating themselves not just to understanding that, but to sharing that understanding, offered an immense gift to, to me personally. <coughs> I feel incredibly fortunate in that regard, and actually to us, to us all. And so the sense of starting from a place of some acknowledgement of what we don't know, but also perhaps the good fortune that we have to be here at all, and the good fortune we have to have the guidance and the input of others who have been in this place before us. And the Buddha is one, but there are many who have been in this place before us and have shared what they learnt for our to contribute to, to support our well-being. So here we are. Life comes, it seems, without an effective instruction book. Or else, of course, we'd have all figured it out, done it right, lived happily ever after, presumably, and the world would be a rather less conflicted place than it is. So we enter into this space, perhaps with some sense of willingness or curiosity to be touched by our life, to be moved by, impacted by, affected by our life. We might think, and probably most of us do think, that we're coming in here to kind of get a handle on it, to figure out what to do with it, to know how better to organize it. In some way that kind of attitude and intention is often underlying much of our activity. And yet I think the truth of it is really it's not so much that we come here to manipulate it, but that by coming into a situation such as this, we can learn and receive what it has to offer us. Coming into the solitude of the silence and the spiritual discipline of practice, it's something where we perhaps start to feel our life more keenly, more directly, more vividly. We just start to notice initially, of course, what we feel more keenly, more vividly, more directly, isn't necessarily what we were hoping to feel. It may be more the, the tiredness or the discomfort or the boredom or the confusion and frustration that sometimes arises in our minds or in our bodies. And we're not quite sure that's really what we want to feel more of or more deeply, more keenly, 
We think, oh, I'd like to be more intimate with my life, but not that, please. No, I don't want to be more intimate with that. That's not what I want my life to contain. And so, although it looks like it could be quite an idyllic situation, you know, we come on retreat, the food is provided, the accommodations are, you know, they're not fancy or opulent, but they're comfortable and they're tidy and they're clean and they've been cared for and maybe we can sense that, the care that's gone into the place. And, you know, we get to do a little bit of meditation. You describe that to your friends, you know, who haven't done it before. What does that involve? It more, oh, we sit around on a soft cushion for a little while, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Then we get up and we just sort of amble back and forth a little while. And then we go back and sit down. And then we lie down and we move our body slowly and, you know, describe the yoga. And there's some invitation to reflect and contemplate. And, but it all sounds like it should be kind of pretty much fun and easy, doesn't it? at one level, and yet the truth of it is, it's not necessarily so. We find all sorts of ways in which this relatively simple engagement of sitting, of walking, of standing, and of moving our body through different postures and expressions of what's possible for a human body to explore and to express, that it's not easy for us. And in the situation, we're kind of we're creating together an environment in which we start to see more clearly what's going on. You know, the bottom line, in many ways, to what we initially encounter is that things are not always the way we want them to be. Our mind is not the way we want it to be. Well, maybe your mind is. But lots of people I talk to tell me their mind doesn't do what they tell it to. How annoying. Ask it to be quiet and it chatters away. Tell it to be bright and clear and mindful and it gets dopey and dozy and sleepy and confused. That's our mind. It feels pretty personal. And it doesn't do what we say. My gosh. And then, of course, our bodies, likewise. Sometimes they can stretch and be flexible. Sometimes they seem stiff and tight and sore. Just this morning, actually, it was this afternoon, sorry, I lay down for a couple of moments on my bed and I just noticed this pain behind my shoulder blade. I don't know what that it's about. And I thought, oh, I'll just stretch that, move that. And then suddenly my arm didn't want to move. If I did this with it, it hurt. And I thought, my first thought was, oh no, what if it stays like this? Now, you're going to chuckle because probably quite a few of you have heard me suggest in the past or even today that things do change but that's the mind that comes in oh no what if this is it that's my arm gone i have a friend who's got a frozen shoulder oh my gosh you know maybe this is it for me and the body worker i've been seeing recently she's going to be really disappointed in me so we go from the you know the tragedy of sudden discomfort unexpected discomfort to oh my gosh permanent injury and then embarrassment in the face of my body worker who I'd like to impress by the fact that my body's getting better rather than getting worse and it's like all that in a moment oh my gosh can I see that can I see what my mind does in a moment like that because here we have an opportunity to see what our mind does and although what we see doesn't always look like good news it's good news that we can see it what we can see 
does not ultimately have the power to bind us. So far as we're not aware of what's going on, we can be bound, caught, entangled, imprisoned, and profoundly limited by patterns and habits, dynamics of mental behavior and reactivity that we haven't understood and in not understanding have allowed to gain considerable power over us which they don't in themselves have but this invitation to look to see oh yeah things are not always as we wish them to be we experience dullness when we want to be bright pain when we want to feel comfortable sleepiness when we want to be awake and of course sometimes wakefulness when at the end of the day we'd really rather go to sleep gosh and what we tend to do with this at one level we don't really want to acknowledge fully that it's there we tend to look away from it and so we only really see it when we can't help but acknowledge it in our life there's lots of ways we all know and have developed culturally socially as well as individually personally, to not have to really see that this is so. To live in the, the hope and the fantasy, really, that there is a way or a place and a condition in which everything could be just as you wish it to be, or just as I wish it to be, or as we all would wish it to be. And if we just work a little harder, work a little longer, work a little faster, work a little later into the night, whether at our office or on ourselves, we'll get to that point. That place where it's all just so. Ah, wouldn't that be nice? We're going to do that tomorrow. We could sell a lot of tickets, couldn't we? We're going to get there tomorrow. We'd all stay on, wouldn't we? I would. I'd buy two tickets. And yet, as we come into conscious contact with our experiences as mature human adults as beings who can see and comprehend what is actually going on we see there's this movement towards that place where it's all going to be great and fine somewhere in front of us that no matter how long we've been moving towards that place we haven't got there it keeps somehow moving away from us the idea that somehow in front of me is some condition in which I can completely rest, relax, and feel always great is attractive and compelling, but ultimately it doesn't relate to our reality, the truth of our experience. It does not seem to confirm that possibility. Of course, there are many things that are wonderful, that are lovely, that are beautiful, touching and delightful in life. And we can know and enjoy these things and cultivate and develop our contact with them, and that's important. But it's equally important that we acknowledge and understand that, oh, yeah, this movement of trying to get to somewhere else, trying to get something else, trying to become someone else other than where we are other than who we are that this process is profoundly unsatisfying unfulfilling and 
something we can never come to the end of so long as we continue to subscribe to what it asks of us, which is to keep moving towards some idea, thing, place, situation, or sense of who I think I should be, that I have come to believe will mean I am therefore fulfilled. And so there's a way we can start to notice how driven our life is. Part of what happens is we just say, okay, let's just land here and stop. And it sounds like a nice idea to me and to you, perhaps. Let's stop. Let's have a break. But what we notice is that we can't just stop. We might actually get our bodies to pause for a little while, but our mind just keeps on spinning much of the time. And we can practice meditation, and there are ways in which the mind can be supported and trained to calm and quiet and steady. But it takes some time. And what we notice before that started to happen, no, it may be happening for us. It actually will be happening, but maybe not as fast as we like. We notice how uncomfortable it is to be inhabiting an experience in which the mind is relentlessly spinning. And we don't normally feel how uncomfortable that is. Because we don't really let ourselves notice that. We're not really fully present for it. But so many conversations over years and decades I've had with people who'd really like their mind to stop. Why is that? We want the thinking to stop. Because it's actually uncomfortable. It's painful. It's distressing. That's not to make thinking the bad guy or the problem. But to see we need to understand what's driving our mind. And so much it is this belief in the idea that there is somewhere else, there is something else, there is some condition which if I can just get there, then everything's going to be good. And here, we are in a situation where we consciously choose, or maybe <laughs> accidentally choose, um, to put ourselves in a situation where we have less control over some things that are rather important to us for being comfortable, for feeling secure. We have less control over our food, as speaking in one of the groups today, someone commenting. It's really hard when you don't get to decide what you're going to eat and when you're going to eat it and how much of it you're going to get. But you're dependent on someone else as to when they put it out and what they decided to offer and how much of it there will be and whether the person in front of you in the queue will take the last one of those things that looked really good. Mostly there's enough bananas at breakfast time, but sometimes they run out. I don't mean to worry you. <laughs> but at home we just go and get another one, or go down to the shop and buy some. And yet if something like that that's often so much we control, we, we have that, we take that away, we start to feel the kind of the unsettledness that often is operating at a less conscious level within us. It's not just the, the food, I mean the schedule. How long shall the sitting be? Should we take a vote? We could do it democratically. Um, it would get pretty complicated, I can assure you, if 60 people or 50 people tried to write and agree on all together what the schedule would look like. You know, Helen and I wrote this one. And actually, if you come on a different retreat, you'll find some different teachers write a different schedule. So it's not like the schedule is somehow a perfect schedule. It's just, oh, this is a way we create a framework in which we start to see ourselves against it. Because we kind of, to a certain degree, give ourselves up 
or give up our preferencing and our choices into this structure and situation. And that's really useful, even though it's not at all easy to do so. It's really useful to see. How am I in a situation where I allow myself to experience what it's like to not be able to control or manipulate or determine the circumstances in which I'm experiencing what my life is right now? There's a little bit of room for that, of course. You, know, you can have one cushion, two cushions, three cushions, extra blankets, you know, more cups of tea, less cups of tea. But there's less of that than usual for us. And in that, it really asks a, a certain nobility of us, a certain courage and dignity to stay, to settle, to deepen into the exploration of this condition of being alive, of being what it is that we are. Human beings is one way we could describe it. To be really interested in this is requires us initially to be willing to tolerate the discomfort of having less control over experience than we're used to, or at least that we're used to thinking we have, because the really fundamental experiences we don't have control over. And the result and underlying effect of that non-control is a kind of anxiety, a kind of distress that keeps looking for the way to get rid of the anxiety by getting things in control, by making things okay, by being able to predict and guarantee that what happens next will feel good. Even though we know that there's no certainty of that. So sometimes we start to believe and be sure that what happens next won't feel good. And then at least we feel a little better because we know how bad it's going to be. Of course, it doesn't work out that way either. Again, as some people were mentioning in the groups, you know, anticipating a lot of discomfort and pain, and it's not that bad. Of course, if we come here thinking it'll all be a sort of a, like a summer beach holiday on a beautiful Pacific island, well, we might be disappointed there too. But that way the mind moves into the future, it's like trying to create some basis of certainty and solidity in which we can take some sense of ground or find some sense of place in which we can feel okay. And of course we keep looking back into the past to figure out what we can from what happened in the past in order to predict what might, will, could or possibly should, we think, happen in the future. So the process of meditation is encountering this dynamic, this way in which even though we might wish to be more present, initially we find that not so easy. It's really important not to judge the fact that this isn't easy for us or that we can't get our mind to be so quiet and steady as we might wish or think it should be. But that we start to look and see, so what's going on in this? What is it that makes this difficult? What is it that makes this challenging? Sometimes, of course, we can get a bit angry or frustrated with the way things are. We don't like that. We don't want it to be so. Sometimes we take that anger or frustration out on ourselves. And it's really important that we don't reinforce or support that tendency. 
to understand that it's not somehow our fault that it's this way. It's like this for us all. All human beings experience these conditions and challenges. And any human being placed in a situation like this would experience it not that differently <coughs> than yourselves. So, we can't control fundamental elements of our experience. But we can learn to respond to those things that we find not easy, perhaps in a different way. It requires us at some point to get real with ourselves about what we're doing with our life. I'm not imagining this is something that will begin for you tomorrow or tonight, having heard me say this. I imagine you're already in this process because otherwise, why would you have come to something like this? So I don't imagine that what I say is all news to you, but nonetheless, it's part of what feels important for me to speak and to name here. You know, to get real with ourselves. I remember for myself the experience, and possibly it was the first time I started to see something clearly about myself. When I was a teenager growing up in New Zealand in my late teens with my friends, our basic social activity, apart from playing rugby, was to go to the pub and to drink a lot of alcohol and to tell ourselves as we drank a lot of alcohol, what a great time we were having drinking all this alcohol. You may recognise the phenomena. Other people might have told you about themselves doing it. Um, probably, uh, yeah. And, and we would talk about what a great time we had the last time we did this thing where we sat around drinking a lot of alcohol. And we'd also talk about what a good time we were going to have the next time we sat around drinking a lot of alcohol. But I kept noticing that I wasn't actually really enjoying sitting around drinking a lot of alcohol. And at some point, I actually really allowed myself to see that, oh, actually, this is really not that much fun. And you know all those times when I remember that we had lots of fun? Most of the fun was to do with telling ourselves how much fun we'd have the next time. But it wasn't any better the next time. There was certainly a camaraderie and a shared friendship in doing something which, from where I sit now, I think was rather um, foolish but understandable as a, as a basic social activity. Um, and there was a, certainly a camaraderie and a sense of a shared activity that was really important for me then. And I am grateful for those friends of that time. But the activity itself of getting, you know, quite seriously inebriated several times a week, I look at it now and think, my gosh, until I saw what was happening, I really believed I was having a good time. And so in that, there's a, there's a process of just wandering where we keep doing the same thing we are doing, hoping it will make us happier than it has done so far. I think that's a uh, definition of some serious mental health condition, which I can't remember, the, the, the act of repeating the same thing, expecting a different thing to happen than what happened from the last time one did it. And yet, we do this in the... Uh, teachings of the Buddha. This is described as samsara, the cycle or the wheel of existence in which we keep repeating the same processes, hoping that by repeating them, we'll somehow take ourselves out of them. A little bit like a, you know, a, a hamster running on a treadmill, as if the hamster imagined it would come to the end of the treadmill by running faster. And if we look at our world, our culture, our society, it's accelerating at the moment. 
It has been for a while. And mostly we're doing more and more of the same things we've already done, but faster and faster and bigger and louder and brighter, expecting that it's going to produce a different condition in our hearts and our minds by doing more of it. It doesn't seem to, to me. When I was in my early 20s, one of the uh, good friends I spent those early years with uh, in pubs, thinking I was having a good time, he got ill and needed surgery. It was a minor and relatively routine surgery um, that went somewhat wrong and sadly, tragically, and for me very personally, very painfully, over the course of six months and another four minor towards major surgeries, he, he was reduced to a condition in which his body could no longer deal with any form of nutrition apart from having it directly piped into his heart because uh, his whole digestive system and all his surface blood vessels were pretty well destroyed through the medical procedures he'd needed to try and keep him alive. And he decided that in a quite a tragic condition his body was not to continue to live and switched off the machines that were keeping him alive and he died. For me it was deeply distressing and grievous the loss of this friend of mine, Radar we used to call him. He had big ears sticking out on the sides. And it gave me along with that real loss, it gave me immense gift that I came to understand quite soon after. Because I'd been wondering what I wanted to do with my life. In fact, I knew what I wanted to do with my life, which was not what I was doing with my life. Without going into the details, I was very clear that what I was doing was not what I wanted to be doing. But I was basically scared to do anything else. And when Radar died, it gave me a really clear message it said to me, and I, I, for me it's like this gift he gave me. He said, do it now. Whatever it is that's important to you in your life, do it now. Because there is no guarantee you'll get to do it in five or ten years' time. Or even next week, to be honest. Because there is no certainty we'll be here for that. And this is something the Buddha spoke about. The opportunity we have in this life is for now and for here. What do we want to do with this life? What's really important? Mary Oliver writes in her wonderful poem, The Summer Day, she says, Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention. How to fall down in the grass 
how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Doesn't everything die and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? To engage in spiritual practice is to really open ourselves to the deeper questions of life and also to listen carefully and respectfully to what it is that moves in us, that perhaps speaks to us of what we really care about, what feels really most important to us. Here on retreat we can see so much of the habitual and unconscious behaviour that can be concerned with trying to control or manipulate our experience, trying to produce ongoing comfort and avoid discomfort if at all possible. That's mostly what we're on about, isn't it? What we think about it, and be honest, it's nothing to be ashamed about. It's perfectly natural. It arises out of very important and quite, uh, you know, appropriate survival functions that we learnt, well, our ancestors learnt, our evolutionary ancestors learnt, you know, hundreds and thousands and millions of years ago, to move away from the unpleasant, to move towards the pleasant. But that in itself doesn't lead to happiness. That in itself does not bring us peace or satisfaction or fulfilment. It doesn't bring us meaning. So to not abandon our life here, to not move away from what's going on, the practice is essentially to keep coming back, to return again and again and again. No matter how times we see, how many times we see ourselves heading off in search of something better or heading out to get away from something that's not, at e not easy or comfortable. If we wonder why we get lost in our minds a lot, and we do, most of us. If we wonder why that is, if we look and see for ourselves, then you can. And through the retreat, for sure you will, I imagine in different ways begin to notice how we're always either moving towards something that looks good or away from something that doesn't look good. And so much of that or doesn't feel good or doesn't make us feel good about ourselves or look good to other people. That process is something that entangles and binds us profoundly, tragically and unnecessarily. to turn towards our life, to turn towards our experience. That which is closest and most intimate to us cannot be escaped 
or avoided. What arises in our hearts, our minds, our bodies. That's what determines how it is for us. And the way we try and manipulate external conditions is all about trying to produce internal conditions. And those internal conditions turn out not to be controllable either. Not in any ultimate sense. We cannot escape our mind. We can get it to be quiet for a while. That's for sure, we can with training and we're working with some of the tools and skills that support that. We can get this body to feel more at ease, more flexible, more open, more soft. Absolutely, and it's worth putting time and energy into that. But that is not the ultimate point and purpose of what we're engaged in. Neither quieting the mind nor opening the body is in itself an ultimate destination. <coughs> Although it's a very, very beneficial facility to have that capacity in body, heart and mind. But to open to our life wholeheartedly, to actually see what is possible for us, and not just to see, but to know, to be able to live an expression and an embodiment of what is possible for us as human beings. This is what we're concerned with. This is what spiritual life is about. No matter what condition or situation you find yourself in, it offers something. No matter what challenges are there in your life, in your personal or your worldly circumstances, it offers something. Every moment of our life, every experience offers something to us. Even the moments that aren't easy for us. The possibility that we can turn towards and connect with open to and know fully and directly what's here right now whatever that might be every moment every experience every single thing we encounter in our life offers us this irrespective of whether we find those things pleasant enjoyable flattering easy or whether we find them difficult challenging scary or embarrassing and there's a pretty good mixture of both for most of us, it seems. No matter how we find those experiences, the possibility that they offer us for meeting, for connecting, and for beginning to see more clearly into the nature of things. This is the gift that is here for us in all moments. Wu Men writes, he says, 10,000 flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. When your mind is not clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life.
whatever condition we find ourselves in. What does it mean that the mind is not clouded by unnecessary things? It's not about the presence or absence of thought or activity, but about the habits of craving and resistance, of grasping and pushing away experience that leaves us in a condition of disconnection from it and which we cannot be touched by it. And that through those processes of grasping and trying to get hold of or pushing away and trying to avoid different experiences, the construction and the sense of identity of me based on all of that, that in my sense of things are the unnecessary additional activities that we men speaks of. That in the absence of that, whatever the conditions, whether we like snow or cool breezes in summer, whatever the conditions, it's possible to know a deep peace, a sense of well-being and a, a remarkable and profound depth of connection in the very midst of our lives. But it's not something that happens necessarily by accident at all. It requires a kind of a training and a development of what's possible for us. The Buddha was once asked, he said, you know, about, about happiness. And he says, you know, I know of no one single thing that conduces more to happiness and the end of suffering than a well-trained heart and mind. And I know of no single thing that conduces more to unhappiness and suffering than a poorly trained or an untrained heart and mind. And so we're engaged here in meditation practice, which when I was first practicing and struggling to find a way to describe it to my friends and family back home, I actually started calling it happiness training. Because it's actually understanding that happiness isn't just an accident that you're lucky to get or unfortunate to have missed out on. It's something that arises through the way we orient and develop our heart and mind. And that we all have the capacity to do this. We all have the capacity to do this. To keep coming back, as we have been doing again and again, and seeing if we can bring a sense of friendliness, of care, of interest, into the experience we're having. Whatever it might be that's arising, whether we feel like we're doing well or whether we feel like we're not doing well. Leaving aside those assessments of ourselves, how quickly we get into evaluating ourselves or each other, imagining that we're better than or not as good as. And, you know, again, as someone was sharing one of the groups, this classic experience has to be named. You know, so we see it. It's like someone is sitting, this isn't exactly the way the person told it today, but I've heard it many times in many forms. Someone is sitting meditating and you know, the body is aching, the mind is busy, it just, oh, 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 I can't do it. And then kind of giving up on trying to be mindful or present or meditative in any way, one looks around and everybody else is sitting so quietly, so still, so calm. It's like, oh my gosh, look, here am I. And look, everybody else, they can do it. 50 almost fully enlightened Buddhas and one overcooked vegetable. 
and we believe this. And of course the person believes it that they just collapse, they slump. And of course probably moments later somebody looks at them, wow they're really calm, that person's sitting really still, they haven't moved for minutes. And yet we project these stories and imagine these evaluations to have some, some truth to them when they don't. We all at times go through those feelings of hopelessness or discouragement. And the fact that we're here together supports us to remember that, oh, yes, we can do this because we are doing it. You are doing it. You don't have to do it more or different or better. Just doing it, which means turning up, showing up, coming back, beginning again, again and again. And each of us, all of us, we can do this. And the Buddha himself said, yes, you can do this. If you couldn't do this, I wouldn't ask you to do this. But you can do this. And so I do ask you to do this. It's not that it's easy. But it's possible. And you know, it seems like a lot of work to be present, to be mindful, to be awake. Did anyone get that sense at any point today? It requires a lot of effort to do this? Uh -huh. Now, it's true, it does require some effort because we have to go against the habits of unconsciousness, the way in which we get pulled by the, like the undertow of wishing to curl up and go into a soft, hopefully safe and comfortable, quiet place where we don't have to do anything difficult, which is called being asleep. And it's really attractive and compelling to us. And we have to work against that habit and tendency. And it does require some effort, for sure. But you know, although on a moment-to-moment -moment level it seems to require quite some effort to be awake, to be present, to come back, to begin again, to let go of those patterns and habits of reactivity, the truth is, if you look at it, that in your life it's much, much harder work to live your life unconsciously and to keep wondering why it is you're banging into things. Because that's what we do when our eyes are shut. We keep banging into, conflicting with, impacting, and being impacted by. And not quite sure what the heck's going on. So looking to see what's happening. This is what we're concerned with. To understand the nature of this process. And in that we can start to see that this capacity to be present, it's natural, it's organic, it's actually here for us. But we do need to support it. In the same way we might need to train a puppy. In order to live amongst human beings, puppy needs some training. And so, you know, if we try to teach a puppy to follow us or to stay with us, and, you know, you put, so how do you do that? You put the puppy down beside your legs when you're standing there at the bottom on the ground by your foot and you say, heel. At least in English, you probably say heel. I mean, stay by my heel. Puppy doesn't have a clue what you're talking about. Runs off. And you say, oh, puppy, come back here, heel. What do you think happens with the puppy? If every time it, run, it runs off, it wants to go smell a flower, you know, chase a butterfly, water a tree, all the things that puppies do. If every time it runs off, you say, bad dog, stupid dog, I told you to heel. Don't you understand English? And you get angry with it. What happens? Pretty soon the puppy thinks... That guy's pretty angry. I'm going to clear off as soon as I can. And it does. Our mind is not that different. If when you see it, 
moving somewhere else or doing something you didn't tell it to do, you get angry or judgmental or critical of it. It doesn't help. It actually makes it less able to settle. It's more like, oh, when the puppy runs up, oh, oh, you want to chase a butterfly. Oh, 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 you've watered that tree. Well done. Okay. Um, and come back here. Oh, 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 you want to play with those other puppies. Huh? Well, come back here. Come back here. After a while, the puppy works out that actually this person's quite friendly. Maybe I'll hang around with them. The mind, too. If we treat it with firmness but kindness and respect, it actually starts to become able to settle more fully and deeply where we are. And in that settling, we start to get a sense. And you may have just had this maybe even for just a moment or half a breath. Or maybe you think you didn't even have this at all, where you settled for even that long. Though I suspect you probably did and maybe didn't quite admit it to yourself. But you may well have noticed it for longer than that as well, of course. But in the moments when we start to settle, when we are actually here, sometimes it happens when the bell rings and you've listened to the instruction that said, don't get up as soon as you hear the bell, but just listen for a moment. But of course, we know that the sitting is about to end. We know it's not going to be five minutes or ten minutes or even two minutes. It's just the length of a bell. So it's like we can relax because we don't have to endure it any longer. And we're just present. And in that moment, of course, it's not really any different than it was a few minutes ago when we didn't have a clue how much longer we were going to be sitting here and we were struggling. Actually, the experience is pretty much the same. But we've softened and opened to it. And in that moment, we just experience something qualitatively different that we might not quite have a word for, although we could put lots of words on it, but that we can feel what it is to be connected, to be present, to be landed, just to be simply here. And it speaks to us. It actually lets us know directly. We don't have to think about it. We know directly, oh, actually this is something I'd like to know more. This is a place I'd like to spend a little more time, get to know a little better. Perhaps figure out how to get it to happen more easily. There's something about what happens for us when we're present, when we're conscious, when we're awake and in touch with what's happening. Even the simplicity of a relatively boring breath or whatever it is that might be happening. That quality of presence, of connection, the quality of our relationship to what's happening in the end is more significant for us than what it is that's happening in terms of the real qualitative element of life. It's not the what's happening. It's the meeting of it. It's what we bring to it. In a sense, we could say what we give to it, not what we get from it. It's what we give to it. And what we learn here is to give attention, to give the space for the experience to be revealed, to be known, to be felt. That's an offering from us. If we withhold that, we find ourselves distant, disconnected, dissatisfied. If we withhold it because we think there should be a different thing happening, we actually miss the opportunity to meet this thing, this moment, this feeling, this thought, this body, heart, mind, manifesting right here and right now, just as it is. But when we don't miss it, when we recognize, when we realize, oh, 
This moment is how my life is right now. This is the place of connection to that which is so precious to me. This life, my life, and all life, in fact. It's through this moment, this place, this point, that that's available and possible for me. Then quite naturally we become more drawn to that, more willing to give ourselves to that. And in doing so, we discover something remarkable, simple but profound. The more unconditionally we are able to meet our experience, moment by moment, which is our life, the more unconditionally we're able to meet this moment, the more unconditioned our life becomes. The more freedom, the more peace, the more ease is available. And this is what we're concerned with. This is what we're interested in, I, I believe. So I'll just finish with a few words from Rio Khan, who was a, a wonderful Zen monk, hermit, poet, mystic, and uh, rather delightful being who lived in the 17th, 18th century in Japan. Rokan says, The rain has ended, the storm has passed, and the sky is clear again. When your heart is pure, all things in your world are pure. Let go of this fleeting world. Abandon your struggle with yourself. And then the moon and the flowers will lead you along the way. So let's just sit quietly together for one or two moments.
And so may we all here in our practice together and in our lives, may we come to rest more deeply in the immediacy of our experience and to know more deeply what is possible for this human heart, this human life. To live with dignity and in freedom for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings. <laughs>